So continuing with the great discourse on the four foundations of mindfulness. We're in the fourth foundation. We talked yesterday about the hindrances and the five aggregates. The next is the six internal and external sense bases. Again, one abides contemplating phenomena as phenomena with respect to the six internal and external sense bases. And how does one do so? Here one knows the eye, knows sight objects, and knows whatever fetter arises dependent on the two. And one knows how an unarisen fetter comes to arise, and one knows how the abandonment of an arisen fetter comes about, And one knows how the non-arising of an abandoned fetter in the future will come about. One knows the ear and sounds, the nose and smells, the tongue and taste, the body and textures, knows the mind and mind objects, and knows whatever fetter arises dependent on the two. And one knows how an unarisen fetter comes to arise, and one knows how the abandonment of an arisen fetter comes about, and one knows how the non-arising of the abandoned fetter in the future will come about. So the fetters are what bind us to the wheel of samsara. The fetters are the things like greed, hatred, and delusion that keep us trapped in dukkha. So what the Buddha is saying is pay attention to your senses and the objects that you're taking in and don't get fooled and wind up in some unwholesome state. For example, if you're walking down the high street and you glance in the shop window and they have one of those in the right color and it's on sale and it's like, yeah, you can put this on your credit card and yet, right, a fetter of greed has arisen, right? I mean, you were just walking down the street and then you saw a colored shape and there was perception of one of those And then all of the mental proliferation, papancha, the thinking about it, the emoting about it, and you decide you've got to have it. And so the fetter of greed has arisen. So this is what the Buddha is saying. Pay attention to your senses and pay attention to your reactions of what you take in through your senses. Don't get trapped. The senses is a quite important teaching in terms of the number of times the Buddha talks about it. There are, as I mentioned, 13 discourses where the Buddha or one of his chief disciples gives a discourse and someone becomes fully enlightened. And a number of those discourses actually pertain to the senses. Most of them pertain to either the five aggregates or the six senses. In the connected discourses, the thematic discourses, the Samyutta Nikaya, there's a book there that has, I think it's 248 suttas on the senses. So clearly this is an important topic. Pay attention to your senses and don't get caught in what's happening. And of course, one does this internally, externally arising, ceasing, etc. Any questions on using the six senses as an object of mindfulness?
Right. I mean, it may be that actually purchasing one of those might be the wise thing to do. But purchase it because it's the wise thing to do as opposed to greed has arisen. So, yeah, when one of these fetters arises, uh, and greed and hatred are going to be the, greed and aversion are going to be the main things, realize that this has happened and deal with the fetter, deal with the greed or the aversion before you actually act on anything that you're seeing or hearing or whatever. Because when you're acting from a place of greed or aversion, you're probably not going to act in the wisest way. So. See it and be mindful of the fact that you are seeing it and be mindful of the reaction you're having to seeing it. Be mindful of identifying the reaction as greed or aversion. And then you have a chance of not getting caught. Right. Okay. Moving right along. The fourth practice that's given is the seven factors of enlightenment, the seven factors of awakening. Again, one abides contemplating phenomena as phenomena with respect to the seven factors of awakening. And how does one do so? Here, if the enlightenment factor of mindfulness is present in oneself, one knows that it is present. If the enlightenment factor of mindfulness is absent in oneself, one knows that it is absent. And one knows how the unarisen enlightenment factor of mindfulness comes to arise. And one knows how the complete development of the enlightenment factor of mindfulness comes about. If the enlightenment factor of investigation of phenomena is present in oneself, the enlightenment factor of energy, of piti, of tranquility, of concentration, of equanimity is present, one knows it is present. If an enlightenment factor is absent, one knows it is absent. And one knows how an unarisen enlightenment factor comes to arise, and one knows how the complete development of an enlightenment factor comes about. So now there are seven factors and four things to do. Is it present? Is it absent? How can you make them arise, and how can you keep them around and bring them to perfection? The last two being, of course, the last two of the four great efforts. To make an unarisen, wholesome state arise, and then to bring an arisen, wholesome state to perfection. Keep it around and bring it to perfection. So these are the seven wholesome states. They could be divided into three groups. The first group would be mindfulness by itself. The second group would be the energizing factors, which would be investigation of phenomena, energy, and piti, glee, rapture. And then the last three are the calming factors, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. The energizing and calming factors need to be in balance. You don't have to worry about mindfulness. You can never have too much mindfulness. But if there is too much energetic 
going on, then the mind really can't see all that clearly what's happening. Even though you're trying to do your best to investigate the nature of reality, without a calm, clear mind, there's going to be a lot that escapes your notice. And similarly, if you spend too much time getting calm, which you could do by, say, hanging out in the jhanas too much, then then you become a space cadet. You become very spacey and ungrounded. I had a former student who was at the Forest Refuge in Massachusetts, which is next door to the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies. And I was teaching a retreat at the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies, and she left me a note, asked, could she come for an interview? So she came for an interview, and I found out she was spending all day long in the jhanas and not doing any insight practice. I also found out that she was so ungrounded, the staff was rather worried about her. She wasn't managing to do her yogi job. Now, you have to admit, yogi jobs are not that complex, but she was having trouble doing it. She was really very ungrounded. And so I said to her, you've got to combine jhanas and insight practice. Spend about half your time getting concentrated and half your time doing insight practice. I saw her at the end of her 10 months on retreat there, and she said that, yeah, that was very helpful, that she no longer was ungrounded when she started doing the insight practice, and the staff quit worrying about her. So it's really important to do the things that give you the calm, quiet mind, and then take your calm, quiet mind and investigate phenomena. The Discourse on Mindfulness of Breathing, Majjhima Nikaya number 118, contains a good bit on mindfulness of breathing, but it also talks about the seven factors of enlightenment as well. It's one of the better discourses on seven factors of enlightenment. And it points out that these support each other. If you're quite mindful, it makes it much easier to investigate phenomena. If you investigate phenomena, you'll get some insights, and the getting of the insights will give you energy, energy to continue. You can tap into that energy to generate PT. You can calm the PT down and enter a state of tranquility, which will produce concentration, and when you are well enough concentrated, you'll be very equanimous. Now, some teachers, including Ayakema, equated the last four of the seven factors of enlightenment as identical with the first four jhanas. I'm not sure I'm going to go quite that far, but certainly the first four jhanas really help with the generation of piti, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity, the fourth jhana being a state of profound equanimity. And then coming out of that, you are in a state where you can be quite mindful and investigate the nature of reality, which will give you energy. So the jhanas certainly are very much a support for working on all seven, four of them directly and three of them in the post-jhanic state. Questions?
Right, but you don't want to get stuck working in one area without sort of keeping the loop going back. Because if you're very equanimous, it makes it very easy to be mindful. So, And the, not only does it go in a sort of a circle, but there's you know, cross-feedback as well. The tranquility is going to be helpful for investigation of states, the concentration, right? The investigation of states and understanding what's going on is going to help you be less restless so that you can be more tranquil. Yeah. But it definitely helps to keep them in balance and to realize they do support each other. Right. Equanimity is the supreme emotion. Uh, This is the state that, I would not say that all states of equanimity are nibbana, but nibbana is a state of unshakable equanimity. That as these come more and more to perfection, then it enhances your equanimity. And the enhanced equanimity is what you will wind up with when you get fully enlightened, an unshakable equanimity. Anything else on the seven factors of enlightenment? The four elements would be in the investigation of phenomena area. So you wouldn't be really noticing the four elements except when doing the investigation. Although you might be noticing the fire element, the energy aspect, when you're in the energy factor. Well, remember, these are mental states. Okay, so they would be in the consciousness element. The four elements are the physical part, your physical body, not your mental part. Okay, and then there's the space element, and then there's consciousness element. Consciousness element being basically all of your mental activity. So all of these would be consciousness element. Everything in second, third, and fourth foundation is consciousness element with the exception of body as the first of the aggregates. And of course, one does this internally, externally, arising, ceasing. The fifth and last of the practices given under the fourth foundation is the Four Noble Truths. Again, one abides contemplating phenomena as phenomena with respect to the Four Noble Truths. And how does one do so? Here one knows as it really is, this is dukkha. One knows as it really is, this is the origin of dukkha. One knows as it really is, this is the cessation of dukkha. 
One knows as it really is, this is the way of practice leading to the cessation of dukkha. So what the Buddha is saying is that anytime you encounter dukkha, you need to know you're encountering dukkha. You need to say to yourself, this is dukkha. Right? Recognize it. Having recognized the dukkha, the Buddha says that it's going to be due to craving. There's going to be some craving around. So can you identify the craving that's associated with the dukkha? Usually that's not too difficult. It's a craving for things to be other than they are. It might be more specific than that, but in general it's, okay, I'm experiencing dukkha. I want things to be different so I don't experience dukkha. But find the craving in as much detail as you can. That's the second step. The third step, having identified the dukkha and the craving that is the necessary condition for its arising, can you turn off the craving? Because if you can manage the cessation of the craving, then the dukkha should go away. Either that or the Buddha's wrong. Check it out for yourself. Remember he said, don't believe me. He said, come and see. Come check this out for yourself. Ehipasiko. Now, turning off the craving is often a difficult thing. Actually, the easiest is if you're sitting in meditation and a pain arises in your body. All right, the pain is dukkha. You want the pain to go away. You're craving for the pain to leave you alone. The method for turning it off actually is to drop whatever your meditation object was, the breath, or whatever, and focus on the pain, just being with it as a mass of unpleasant Vedana, (coughs) without really calling it pain or wishing it to go away. Just put your full attention concentrated on that pain. At some point, it may break up. The aversion to the pain may disappear and you're just experiencing strong, unpleasant Vedana. That's it. Notice that when the aversion, which is the craving for it not to be there, goes away, then you're not experiencing it as dukkha anymore. There's relief. You can try this for anything that's dukkha. Find the craving and see if there's some way that you can let go of that craving. And then the fourth, one knows as it really is, this is the way of practice leading to the cessation of dukkha. So this would be simply to know the Eightfold Path and to practice it. In other words, don't get caught up in views and opinions. Know what your intention, your, uh, your motivations are. Notice what's the intention behind what you're doing. Is it renunciation, love, compassion, or is it something else? Buddha says that right intention is letting go, being loving, being compassionate. Practice right speech and right actions, which you will do if you keep the precepts. Check out that your livelihood 
is in accord with the Dharma, doesn't involve breaking the precepts. Make the effort to overcome and prevent the unwholesome states and to bring into being the wholesome states and bring them to perfection. Be mindful and learn to concentrate your mind in meditation practice so you can investigate reality. Now what follows in this sutta is the detailed explanation of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path that I use as the basis for the talk on the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path back at the beginning of the course. That detailed explanation is what does not appear in the middle-length version of this sutta. But other than that, the two suttas are identical. And then one does it internally, externally, arising and passing. Any questions on using the Four Noble Truths as a basis for mindfulness? Okay. And this sutta comes with a guarantee. Whoever should practice these four foundations of mindfulness for just seven years may expect one of two results. Either arahantship in this life, or if there should be some substrate left, the state of a non-returner. So either full enlightenment or at least the third stage. Let alone seven years, whoever should practice them for just six years, five years, four years, three years, two years, one year, may expect one of two results. Let alone one year, whoever should practice these for just seven months, six months, five months, four months, three months, two months, one month, half a month, let alone half a month, whoever should practice these four foundations of mindfulness for just one week may expect one of two results. Either our huntship in this life or if there be some substrate left, the state of a non-returner. It was said... There is this one going path that leads to the purification of beings for the overcoming of sorrow and distress, for the disappearance of pain and sadness, for the gaining of the right path, for the realization of Nibbana, that is to say, the four foundations of mindfulness. And it was for this reason it was said. Thus the Lord spoke, and the monks rejoiced and were delighted in his words. So all you've got to do to get it to at least the third stage of enlightenment is be totally mindful for seven days in a row. Maybe I should have told you this at the beginning of the course. <clears throat> but yeah, yeah, you could try it out when you go home. Try it out on your next retreat, okay? Just don't lapse into any mindlessness. So, any questions on this sutta? What's the difference between equanimity and indifference? Indifference is the near enemy of equanimity, and it doesn't care. Equanimity fully cares, right? So sometimes people are in a stressful situation, and they're not losing their cool because they just don't care. They don't care about the other people around them that are suffering, They've just sort of checked out. But equanimity fully cares 
is fully engaged in doing what it can to alleviate the suffering and still not getting freaked out. So it's the caring part that's the important. We could think of the four Brahma-viharas, the four supreme emotions, in sort of a diamond shape. At the top is metta, loving-kindness, wishing that any being you encounter be well and happy. And then going out into the world is metta in action. If you encounter dukkha, you do what you can to alleviate the dukkha. If you encounter rejoicing, you rejoice with those who are rejoicing. That's compassion and appreciative joy. And it's all done with a balanced mind. That's the equanimity. And so an underpinning of metta is how equanimity manages to fully care. But it's more than just fully caring, it's staying in balance in the face of stress or in the face of something joyful, not becoming overly exuberant. Other questions on this sutta? Okay, we have quite a stack here. Can you recommend any teachers in the U.S.? Uh, It doesn't say whether it's jhana teachers or just meditation teachers. There's not many people teaching jhanas in the U.S. There's Bhante Gunaratna, but he's retiring further and further. He's a good teacher. He's in West Virginia outside of Washington, D.C., uh, Tanasaro Bhikkhu teaches jhanas. He lives at a monastery in an avocado grove outside of San Diego. Uh, he doesn't teach retreats. You just have to sort of go and camp out in the avocado grove. And He's, a, he's an interesting guy for sure. Uh, two other people I know of that teach jhanas occasionally are Shaila Catherine and Richard Shankman, both of whom have books out. Uh, meditation teachers in general in the U.S. Uh, I really like Joseph Goldstein. I think he's quite an exceptionally brilliant teacher. Uh, He's on sabbatical next year, but if you can study with him, definitely recommend it. Um, The other teachers sort of come and go. There's a monastery in Northern California called Abayagiri. Ajahn Pasano, who's the abbot there, is a good teacher. Uh, Don't know if he's teaching retreats or not. Stephen and Martine Batchelor are people I really enjoy sitting with, but they live in France. Uh, But they do come to the States on a regular basis, both to the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies on the East Coast and to Spirit Rock on the West Coast. Kitty Saro and Tanisara. Kitty Saro is from Tennessee. Tanisara is from southern England. 
They were monk and nun at Amravati for a number of years and have been living in South Africa. And they are now spending more time in the U.S., so highly recommend them as well. Those are the teachers that I, I have a really good feel for. Gil Fronstel, who's in Silicon Valley, he's quite good. Pretty much doesn't travel to teach. You'd have to go to California to study with him. Uh, Richard Shankman. Kitty Sorrow and Tanisara. They don't teach jhanas, but they're very, very good teachers. found the sandcastle metaphor very powerful. Can you suggest a way of using it in insight meditation? Uh, I've, I've tended to use it not so much during insight meditation, but in daily life. When I find myself wanting something, which being a greed type occurs from time to time, I try and remind myself, yeah, this is a sandcastle. It's not going to provide me lasting happiness. It's impermanent. There's no way I can count on this. So it's more like I use it when I find myself wanting to do the craving and clinging thing, not really so much in formal insight practice. Can meta practices be used as insight practices? Well... I wouldn't say directly, although sometimes you do get insights while doing it. It seems to be more indirect. Uh, this past winter, I spent 10 weeks doing Brahma Vihara practice, uh, three weeks of metta and two weeks on each of the others. And I was quite surprised at the amount of insight that I got though most of it didn't come while in formal sitting practice. Now, the, the thing about dukkha being bummer, yeah, that did come while I was doing compassionate practice for my difficult person. He's difficult because he's got a lot of dukkha. So, and it just, that just showed up. So, yeah, but m- more insights came when I would go for a walk after lunch. I would just try and be mindful while going for a walk, and I was astonished at the amount of insight that showed up while doing my walk. It was like I got a new, wow, insight every week while out on my walk. So I would say, yes, the Brahma-Vihara practices can bring insights, though they might not bring them while you're doing the practice, but if you'll stay mindful afterwards... Maybe the insights will show up. And the insights, when I was going for a walk, sometimes had nothing to do with the Brahma-Vihara practice. I mean, there was no way I could trace back the insight to any of the practice. But they were showing up nonetheless, so I didn't care how it was working. I, I found it quite valuable. So 
Are there other Brahma Vihara practices other than metta? Yes. There's compassion practice. Usually it has one phrase, something on the order of, may you be free from your suffering. So starting with myself, may I be free from suffering or may I be free from dukkha. And then thinking of other people, in particular, trying to get in touch and see what their dukkha is, what are the things that are bothering them, and then wishing, may you be free from that. If metta practice is beaming out a light of good wishes, uh, compassion practice is more like a giant vacuum cleaner, (laughs) sucking up the ills of the world. Appreciative joy practice is basically wishing that someone's good fortune will continue. Something like, may you enjoy your good fortune, may it continue. Now, usually appreciative joy is taught as always done for other people. It's often translated as sympathetic joy or empathetic joy, which somehow implies another person. But that appears to be a fairly late distinction. In the suttas, when the Buddha talks about the Brahma-viharas, all four are done for yourself and everyone else. Even in the Vasudhimaga, 900 years after the Buddha's death, one does mudita practice for oneself as well as everyone else. So appreciate your own good fortune and wish that it may continue as well. So I like appreciative joy. Uh, It's perfectly okay to enjoy the fact that your life is going well. And then equanimity practice. Uh, have yet to find any really great phrases that I have settled on. Uh, the, probably the most traditional one is, you are the owner of your karma, which, okay, that doesn't speak to me. <laughs> right? Better, uh, things are as they are. My wishing for them to be different can't change them. So that was the hardest of the practices to do Uh, because in the first three cases, you're sort of sending something out or taking something in, whereas you're not really sending equanimity to the ones that you're doing the practice, shall we say, with. It's more like, can I be equanimous in the face of all the suffering that's going on in Africa? Can I be equanimous with all the suffering that's going on in Afghanistan? Can I be, etc. So what I found that worked best, if I was going to be doing equanimity practice for a person or a group of people, was to first send some peacefulness to them, just a, a wish of peacefulness, and then think, may I be able to accept the conditions that these people are facing. Things are as they are. I can't really change this. But the sending the peacefulness there seemed to help me become more equanimous in this. Uh, I think in Sharon Salzberg's book on loving kindness, she does talk about the phrases for the other Brahma-vihara practices. 
But basically, you know, you can find your own phrases or just simply generate the feeling. Does that... Right. Right. Yeah, I would say that an insight is an understood experience. So it has an understanding to it. And yet it's not just an intellectual understanding. There's an experience and you understand the experience. Uh you may have an experience and not have any clue what's going on, in which case there's no insight. It's just an experience and it was like, what was that? Or wow, what was that? But the understanding is what's helpful. Insights can be of what I would say two major types. One would be personal insights, insights into your own psychological processes, insights into you know, how to better run your life, things like that. And then more general insights, which would be a deeper understanding of anicca, dukkha, anatta, of inconstancy, of the fact that things are not ultimately satisfying, of the fact that things don't have an essence, a core, that they're empty. These last three usually translated as impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self, are the ones that are going to be most helpful on the spiritual path. But the personal insights need to be dealt with as well. You need to gain insight into your personal workings in order to clear away so that you can get the more impersonal insights. So any insight into either how you work or how the world works is quite helpful. And an insight would be an understood experience. And looking at ultimate truth and relative truth. Ultimate truth, the world is a sphere. Relative truth, the sun rises and sets, the horizon is flat. Sort of. I'd say actually they're both relative truths. Uh, The ultimate truth would be that this planet that we find ourselves on is a temporary uh, happening, that it came together in the past, it will fall apart at some point in the future, And that while we're here, we need to take care of it because there is no place else we can live. But um, uh, I'll talk more about relative and ultimate truths tonight. The, The ultimate truths are looking at the world from a place of a place where you're not conceiving of entities and seeing the world more as interrelated processes. Uh, 
right? So the ultimate truth is we are stardust. We're the result of a supernova explosion and gravity gathering up the bits and pieces of the supernova explosion. Some of those pieces becoming the sun, some becoming the earth. Gravity firing up the nuclear core of the sun, producing the energy, which eventually yields us. But we're just part of these streams of phenomena coming together. There's something else written on here, but unfortunately, I only have 1x glasses and it's written so small I can't read it. So, uh, if the person wants to rewrite it so I can understand it, see it, that would be helpful. Can you say a little more about what is meant by Vitaka and Vichara and how we know they have disappeared in the second jhana? The instructions for moving through the jhanas imply some kind of mental activity. Okay, so Vitaka and Vichara in the suttas always and only mean something like initial and sustained thinking or perhaps more accurately, thinking and more thinking. It's referring to the wispy background thinking. The move to the second jhana where the vitaka and vichara goes away would be, okay, so you generate the first jhana and you have the piti and sukha going and there's still the wispy background thinking of the access concentration. And then things calm down, the inner tranquility, and the unification of mind. The mind really absorbs into the experience of piti and sukha. And there's no more of this background thinking. This would be the ideal way. This is the description that's given. This is probably what the Buddhas, monks, and nuns were practicing when they would go out and sit for six, eight hours at a time. However, what I gave to you was slightly different from this. What I was saying was in the first jhana, the piti is predominating and the sukha is in the background. When the piti predominates, it's not such a settled feeling. And so what I'm saying to move to the second jhana is calm down the piti and focus on the sukha, leaving the piti in the background. And you'll find that it's a calmer place and hopefully there's less thinking, less of that background thinking. If your concentration gets really good at that point, then the thinking will disappear completely. So what I'm teaching you is not literally the same as what you find in the suttas. I'm sorry, I adjusted it a bit. I adjusted it a bit so that you'd have a much better chance of learning it in a 10-day course rather than, you know, coming in and saying, okay, now we're going to do three-hour sittings on this course and maybe you'll get deep enough to where you do get the full absorption. Uh, 
the level of concentration that I'm teaching at is the level that people tend to stumble into when they're doing meditation practice and wonder what what happened to me here. And this is the level that you can learn on a 10-day course. So I'm not literally correct. This is going to be a tricky thing for me to put into my book when I write a book, which is planned to be done at the end of 2012, how to get in the real jhanas with the vitaka and vichara going away and not confuse all my students that have been hearing me talk about, you know, turning down the PT and focusing on the sukha. Oh, well. Uh, The instructions for moving through the jhanas implies some mental activity, yes. The movement, if you do it intentionally, does require that there be some mental activity. So, Beyond the first jhana, when you decide, say, to go from the second jhana to the third jhana, if you're in the second jhana and you're not doing any thinking, you're just there locked into the experience of sukha with some PT in the background, when you decide, okay, time to move to the third jhana, calm down the PT to contentment, you're actually between jhanas. You have, by definition, come out a bit of the second jhana, not lost the factors, but you don't have really the one-pointedness without any mental activity. It's a little bit of mental activity, and you settle down into the third jhana, and the mental activity goes away as you're absorbed there. So that's what's actually happening at, at the depth. Now, you may find that at some point you're in the second jhana, and it just on its own goes over into the third jhana without you doing anything. Then it would happen without any mental activity. But the commentaries definitely speak about the advantages of learning to move between the jhanas on your own, and I think in this case they're correct. If you're just sitting there waiting for it to move on its own, you're going to need good concentration, which you might have on this retreat. (coughs) But when you go home, your concentration is probably not going to be as good. And it's going to be more difficult to sit there and wait for the jhana to move on its own. So it helps to know what you can do, given a lesser degree of concentration, to make the jhana shift to a deeper state, because that will give you deeper concentration. So yes, there's some mental activity involved when you intentionally move between jhanas. The jhanas are clearly an important part of practice, so why are they not taught more often in retreats? Yeah, how come? Well, you really need to ask the people who aren't teaching them why they aren't teaching them, but I'll give you my speculation. So it was these hippies and Peace Corps volunteers in Asia that began studying meditation over there and brought it back to the West. So they went to their teachers and learned meditation from them, and they didn't learn the jhanas. You see, the jhanas in Theravadan Buddhism, which is what predominates in South Asia, including Thailand and Burma and in India where Buddhism is found, and in Sri Lanka, is primarily Vasudhimaga Buddhism. In other words, it's looking not so much to the suttas, but to the Vasudhimaga. The 
definition of what constitutes a jhana changed quite a bit between the time of the Buddha and the 900 years until the Vasudhimaga was composed. It changed by getting deeper and deeper and deeper concentration required before you could slap the label jhana on it. Kind of makes sense. You know, a bunch of guys out in the woods, nothing to do but meditate. Whoever could do it the best, yeah, that's the real stuff. Next generation, whoever could do it the best, yeah, that's the real stuff. And it just kept getting deeper and deeper states. Unfortunately, it got defined to such a point that almost no one could enter a jhana. The Vasudhimaga literally says that of those who come to meditation, only one in a million can get to the first jhana. It doesn't say it quite like that. It says, of those who come to meditation, only one in a hundred or one in a thousand can get to access concentration. Of those who get to access concentration, only one in a hundred, one in a thousand. And it goes up like that. Actually, I, th- I think it's another step before access concentration. So taking the optimistic one in a hundred, multiplying it together, and you get one in a million people can do the jhanas. Well, now you look at the suttas. The Buddha did not have a million disciples. The largest number we see is 1,250. And yet, lots of his disciples were doing the jhanas, so clearly something has changed. So now, fast forward to the 20th century, and the jhanas, as understood in Theravadan Buddhism in the 20th century in South Asia, are so difficult that only one in a million people can do it. Well, now you got these hippies and Peace Corps people coming over from the West... (laughs) not going to teach them jhanas. They're going to have trouble following their breath. So they were taught the practices that were brought back here, you know, following the breath, doing the body scan, things like this, metta. And so that's what Western Buddhism became, was a non-jhanic branch of Buddhism, simply because basically people were told, no, that's too difficult. Luckily, there are people like Ayakema and people like Tanjef and people like Bhante Gunaratna who took a look at the suttas to see actually what the Buddha was saying. And seeing that there is a definition of the jhanas that is quite legitimate, given that the Buddha was the one who was doing it, that doesn't involve such depth of concentration that only one in a million people can get there. And so the jhanas have begun to start to show up in the West. But most people, you know, are learning from those early pioneers that went to Asia or are learning from students of those early pioneers who went to Asia, and the jhanas simply aren't taught that much. So that's sort of a historical reason why. Another reason may be that in order to teach the jhanas, you probably have to be crazy. I mean, I'm teaching a retreat here, and I'm knowing that I'm going to be put out something that sounds really kind of cool, and knowing that some people aren't going to experience it. That's a tough thing to deal with. So, uh, yeah, easier just to teach something everybody can do. So maybe that's part of it as well. Um, but yeah, I would say 
Ask the other teachers why they don't teach the jhanas. If they tell you that they aren't needed, then ask them why the Buddha made them part of the Eightfold Path if they aren't needed. Uh, Now, maybe you shouldn't ask that sort of stuff. (laughs) So, we've got about 20 minutes. Further questions? Zen and the jhanas. I have found zero reference to the jhanas in, in any Zen literature, although the word Zen derives from the Chinese word chan, which derives from dhyana, which in Sanskrit, which derives from the Pali jhana, but no description of them. I have, however, had a number of students who have practiced in the Zen tradition who report falling into these states. I mean, you sit down, you get concentrated, this might happen. And so it happens in Zen, but apparently there's no record of anybody talking about it. The jhanas do show up in the Tibetan tradition. Uh, Alan Wallace practices in the Tibetan tradition and teaches jhanas at the depth of concentration equivalent to the Vasudhimaga, so very, very deep concentration. I have yet to meet a Tibetan who actually practices and teaches the jhanas. Uh, But they're certainly there in their literature. I know that if you're in the Galupa tradition, which is the branch of Tibetan Buddhism that the Dalai Lama is the head of, uh, if you're going to get a Geshe degree, then you have to learn about the jhanas, but apparently they don't practice them. They just, you know, learn the descriptions. Other questions? Can you talk about the effects that you see the jhana practice have on students? Well, people say that (laughs) it uh, sort of enlivens their practice. You know, dry insight practice, following the breath, gets a little dry. So if you get some uh, PT and sukha and some contentment, yeah, it can can make practicing a a bit more interesting and not quite so dry. Major impact I've seen, though, is people who do insight practice in the post-jhanic state of mind and actually get some pretty profound insights, sometimes that are life-changing. So that seems to be the major thing I would see. Uh, I usually talk about that on the last day, but since we got time, uh, there is not too many mantras in Theravadan Buddhism, but there is one. Sit every day. Sit every day. So, to the best of your ability, have a daily sitting practice. Uh, Ayakema said that if you want to keep the same level of concentration that you have on a retreat when you go home... You need to sit an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening. This is what she told me, not what I do. All right, I found it difficult having a job and getting in two hours a day. Uh, 
I could get in an hour in the morning, or sometimes it was only 45 minutes, and then I'd go sit with the group in the evening once or twice a week, and that'd get me some more time in. But even at that level, I found that my skill with the jhanas was beginning to fade away. The thing that helped bring it back was go on some more retreats. So uh, I found for myself I needed two retreats a year minimum and worked much better if I had three. It's also really helpful to have a group that you can sit with, a group of noble friends with whom you can have noble conversations. A weekly sitting group really sort of helps you keep your daily practice going helps you remember the priorities that you're attempting to set, things like that. Those are the basic things. Uh, You may find it helpful to read about the Dhamma or to read even suttas. The suttas are not an easy topic to approach, mostly because you have to deal with the repetitions. But you can learn to deal with the repetitions, And once you finally figure out how to deal with them, it actually is quite helpful. If you want to start reading suttas, I would suggest you get a copy of Bhikkhu Bodhi's book, In the Buddha's Words. It has a number, it's an anthology of suttas. And what Bhikkhu Bodhi has done is pick a topic, write a nice introduction to that topic, and then a collection of suttas on that topic. And then another topic with an introduction and a collection of suttas. <coughs> His introduction is quite helpful in getting a sense of you know what the Buddha is actually talking about when he's talking about this topic. And then you read the suttas, and you just got to read enough suttas to where you figure out how to deal with the repetitions. As they say, they can be helpful. You come to a bunch of repetitions, you see that word changed, 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 and you're done. You just read two pages that fast. (laughs) I mentioned there were 248 suttas on the six senses. I read them all in one sitting. There's so much repetition there that it's, you know, if you know how to deal with the repetition, you just sit down and you can read through all of them. Learn to scan it really quickly to know how the repetition, the patterns that the repetitions have, because they come in several flavors. Recognize the flavor, pick out the key words that are changing, and just move right quickly through it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's the key things daily practice, sitting group. Go on more retreats. If you find reading Dharma books helpful, it can be quite inspiring. Definitely do so. And if you want to start reading suttas, start with In the Buddha's Words. I would say that if when you go home, you still have access to the jhanas, continue to practice them. Sometimes you go home and they're gone. Sometimes you go home, you keep them around for a few weeks or a few months. Sometimes, if you're really diligent, you can keep them going. Uh, So, yeah, if they're there, yeah, keep them going. I would say spend about half of your time getting concentrated and half of your time doing insight practice. Uh, 
Now, it may be that some days you spend most of your time getting concentrated and some days you spend most of your time on insight practice, So, but try and get it to balance out. Well, the body scan is an insight practice, so yeah, you can definitely do that. Uh, people want to know how often. Uh, well, if you want to know how often, I'll say at least once a week, but, you know... Whatever works for you. I mean, you could do it every sitting if you wanted to. Uh, and if you really hate it and don't think that it would be useful, then you can skip it. But, you know, it's a useful thing to, to work on. Uh, it was my main practice for my first three years. And I do it from time to time, but not so much anymore. As for doing metta practice, start all of your sittings with metta. Definitely. And, yeah, you could... I mean, the Buddha talks about actually getting into the first jhana and then coming out of the first jhana and doing metta practice. So you could use that after you've been in the jhanas. You could use it as your access method for getting into the jhanas. Or you could just sit down and do an hour of metta practice. But I would say don't neglect metta practice. Definitely find some ways to get it in there. Um, Maybe here, when you're doing your five things at the beginning, your metta has been rather brief, and maybe when you go home, you make it a bit longer. You know, if you're only spending a minute doing it now, maybe you go home and you spend 10 minutes doing metta at the start of each sitting. That's another way to work with it. Right. The, the body scan can be used as a concentration practice and it can be used as an insight practice. It's a twofer, right? So if you sit down and do the body scan, you might gain some insight while doing it. And when you're done, you'll be quite concentrated and then you might be able to end there, the jhanas. Yeah. best translator today is Bhikkhu Bodhi. He's the one who did the middle-length discourses and the connected discourses from Wisdom Publications. He's working on the numerical discourses. Uh, I don't know when that will be out. There's, he has a small anthology of suttas from the numerical discourses. It's good. Marish Walsh is who did the long discourses. Uh, the current copy of the book is a hardcover with a green dust jacket rather than this light version, but the pages are identical. So Maurice Walsh and Bhikkhu Bodhi seem to be the, the best translators today. Uh, Venerable Analio, who I mentioned, had a book on the Satipatthana Sutta. Uh, he's a very good translator, but there's not that much material. His translation of the Satipatthana Sutta, I think, is the best translation I've read. And I found a little bit more stuff translated by him, but not a lot. Those would be who I would say are the the best translators. I don't know of anyone doing that. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, I can't think of anyone. Tignat Han does it. Yeah. 
Yeah, old. Old what? Old path, white cloud. Yeah, so he seems to storytell him. I don't know how accurate it would be. After all, he's Zen, and he's trying to tell Theravadan suttas. But it may be okay. So maybe it's mostly Chinese. I don't know. Dharma Seed has Bhikkhu Bodhi's teachings on the Majjhima Nikaya. And he does tell them there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. If you put it into modern English, it's going to be a lot more interpretation done. I mean, even just to get it into readable English, there's a good bit of interpretation. And this is oral stuff. I mean, it works really well as an oral tradition. I've n- known a, a few people that were in sutta study classes, and they would read the suttas out loud and then discuss them. Uh, that seems to be a really good way to get a handle on what's going on. On the Access to Insight website, accesstoinsight.org, there is a link to another site by the same person that has a bunch of people reading suttas. Uh, you can find that from the Access to Insight website, but also if you go to my site and click on Talks and scroll to the bottom of that page, there is there are, I think, three suttas that I read aloud and direct link to take you to those, and then you're on the site and you can find all the rest of them. They tend to be shorter suttas. I did read a longer one for him. And he decided not to put it up because <laughs> it's just really hard to read this stuff. I mean, what we need is, you know, some radio personalities rather than Dharma teachers in there reading this stuff. Using the breath as an insight practice after the jhanas. Uh, or would it be better to do some other form of insight? Yeah, I I know some, but I'm not. I don't do them that often, and I don't really feel competent to try and describe it in a way that would be that useful. Uh, but certainly pretty much any breath practice that you learn from pretty much any other Western teacher is going to work quite well after the jhanas. There's uh, choiceless awareness, sometimes 
that phrase is used, where you're using just the breath to anchor you as you to a place to come back to as you're noticing what's going on around you. But I tend to use the breath principally for concentration practice myself, so I hesitate to try and go into any detail. If you want to pursue this, I would say get a copy of Mindfulness with Breathing. I think there's a copy in the library there uh, by Ajahn Buddhadasa, and that'll give you a pretty good idea of how to use the breath. And then there's Larry Rosenberg's book, Breath by Breath, which also, again, is, is using the breath as an insight practice. But I definitely recommend Mindfulness with Breathing by Buddha Dasa. Oh, my own? Uh, I'll put the URL up. There, there's. Oh, okay. So, yeah, it's leeb.com, my first name, my last initial.com. I put it up in November of 96. So, it's an old site. It's got, I don't know, 250 pages on it. It's got some Buddhist stuff. It's got about my travels, how to pack your suitcase for a long trip. It's got computer information on it. It's got, you know, stuff about me personally. It's got stuff on Meta. It's got stuff on Tibet. Uh, anything that I wanted to keep track of, I found some place to stick it on my website so that I had access to it. So it's a pretty much a hodgepodge of a bunch of stuff. There's some writings that I've done on Buddhism and on a few other topics. There are links to talks, some of which are on my site and some of which are hosted elsewhere. Um, reading list. Reading list. The, there's a thing called the to-do list. That's where the, five, the fives came from, the f- five daily reflections, five things to do before and after. Uh, yeah. 